This episode of See Here is dedicated to the memory of one R.L. Burnside. Well, well, well. Listening to episode 83 of the See Here podcast. We're proudly members of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Over in Bath is my colleague and good friend, Mr. Bernard Stickwell. Good morning. And for the first time since, I'm not sure if it's October or November, I welcome back the triumphant return of the man from Brantford, our beloved Tim Merrill. Welcome back, Tim. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back. How you doing? All the better for having you back on the show. You can carry this one. You've gone and picked. <laughs> you've gone and picked a doozy for us. 2007 film Black Snake Moan. I think there's going to be a lot that's going to be very interesting to say about this film. So what we're going to do is we're going to go quickly to a break, play the trailer for the film, then we're going to get right into it, talking about stories of redemption, the blues, and all other sorts of things. You're listening to See Here, episode 83. Too fast. Found you out by the side of the road. Looked like somebody took the beating on you pretty bad. Yeah, I guess I best be on my way. Well, I, I think we need to talk. Before no, before. sir. I gotta be on my way. Now, best get your wits about you before you just I, I want to tell you about that. Why you got me chained? You let them men treat you like that. What the hell you know about me? God put you in my path, and I aim to cure you of your wickedness. Get your ass back in my house! What you thinking? A half-naked white woman chained up in your house? I done made up my mind on this. I ain't gonna be moved. You can take this off. You ain't right yet. I'm fixing steaks for supper. I expect you to stay. I'm standing my doorway crying, yeah. 
And we're back from break. Morris over here, Bernie, and our beloved Tim also over there. Welcome back to the show. The film is Black Snake Moan. It came out in 2007, directed by one Craig Brewer. And even if you've listened to every episode of See Here, Craig has a history with this podcast, but we can't talk about that. The film stars Samuel L. Jackson, Christina Ricci, Justin Timberlake, and one Sharon Epitha Murkison, who I just read is in, I think she, I'm not sure it's in post-production or she's about to start acting in a film on the life of Marvin Gaye. She'll be playing as Alberta Gaye, Marvin Gaye's mother. Uh, and that's being directed by Julian Temple. So we might have to see if we can get Julian onto the show to talk about that. Not, but uh, just thought that little connection to this film. So the IMDb description, a God-fearing bluesman takes to a wild young woman who as a victim of childhood sexual abuse looks everywhere for love, never quite finding it. Hmm. Okay, so a more see here appropriate description would be a religiously lapsed bluesman who is damaged by a failed marriage uses the power of blues music to heal a young woman suffering severe anxiety attacks due to childhood sexual abuse. Maybe that's a little bit more see here friendly. I don't know. Anyway, Tim, you picked this as your comeback film. Tell us about your history with Black Snake Moan. Well, actually, the whole crux of this is it starts even before this film, because as you both know, this film was dedicated to uh, one Mr. R.L. Burnside. And it's funny because a lot of it is loosely based on his music and an idea that uh, Craig Brewer had from listening to his music. And it's funny how it's not just RL, but all aspects of the blues are incorporated into this film. And I remember when this was coming out, I initially, truth be told, I never really saw Hustle or Flow. It just really wasn't my thing, so to speak. And then when I heard that he was uh, setting his sights on a different genre, this was the one that really pulled me out by the ears. When I first sat down with this film, I thought, I didn't want to be the eternal skeptic, but I just thought, you know, how much of this is going to be grit and how much of this is going to be gloss? I really have to give them credit because they really dug deep on this film in uh, many ways. And it's also the thing that gets me about it, and we're going to get into this. There's a certain mysticism that comes with the blues because, I mean, it deals with sex, it deals with religion, it deals with struggle and redemption. But there's a real kind of mythical mysticism that comes with all of that, where there's the truth and then there's the tale. And I think that this film kind of weaves both of them really decently. And this isn't a straight up music film, you know, that we would normally expect to do. Yet music is an absolute essential part of it all. Music is kind of the backbone, so to speak, of this film. That's why I went with it. It's probably the only common thing it has with the Stone Age, which we covered a couple of months ago. That wasn't strictly a music film, but music was definitely intertwined in uh, the culture of that film as well. Well, what's really funny with both of them is, I mean, yes, the lead protagonist in this film is a musician. But if you took out the whole music element out of this film... It just wouldn't be a film. And it's the same thing with the Stone Age. I mean, you know, if it was just these guys sitting in a car and having a conversation without the music, it would have just been Seinfeld. It's so funny how people can easily dismiss music and just say, oh, well, it was just, you know, one aspect of the film. But then again, I say to people, if you take the music out of it, is it still a film? It's certainly not this film, that's for sure. No, no. Bernie, we spoke about this a little bit before we started recording, but when I found out that the director of this film was Craig Brewer, who directed Hustle and Flow, I was worried that there was going to be his (laughs) curse oversee here. Craig Brewer is the John Hyatt for Love That Album on See Here. So I have to ask you, had you seen this before? It was a first time viewing for me, and I'm happy to say that um, I liked it a whole heck of a lot more than I liked Hustle and Flow. um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Again, maybe maybe we shouldn't go there. No, maybe not. Yeah, I, I, I found it really interesting. I, I, I think it's interesting that the way the film was kind of publicised and played up and a lot of the sort of marketing imagery, posters and so on, I think in a sense do it a bit of a disservice. Oh, big time. Um, they obviously went for that kind of pulpy 70s exploitation-y kind of look with the advertising campaign. 
right and with the the media for it and it's does it i don't think it really has elements of that at all in it no um it's it's essentially a film about broken people and trying to find strength and trying to find redemption like tim said the music again as tim said it, it's not a massive part of the film but it it defines who the main character is and it's a reflection of the culture and the lives that these people lead i enjoyed it an awful lot in fact i enjoyed it a lot more than i thought i was going to this this uh, i'm looking forward to talking about this it, it's funny bernie like what you said about the whole promotion of the film like when you see the yeah. poster it looks almost like you're expecting something like mandingo yeah, absolutely. You know, I wonder like, if it, it came out around the time that Tarantino did Grindhouse. Just all that kind of stuff really kicked right. off in the mainstream. And well, you, you kind of feel like they made a choice to ride the coattails of that almost. And like I say, it really doesn't yeah. feel many favours. Well, you know that the uh, poster is actually kind of indicative of RL's album cover for Ass Pocket of Whiskey. Yeah. Right, with the John Spencer Blues explosion. Right. Oh, okay. All right. See the cover of that, it's pretty much the same as the poster, so I can see like that's where they kind of cop that from. But just you're right, just the way that they kind of glossed it all up, it, it does look like it's got that kind of Tarantino spin on it, yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm just checking out the cover of an ass pocket of whiskey. Yeah, I get it. I, I don't know. Yeah, it just feels like um, a, a full spill of goods almost, you know. I guess maybe that's a good thing because maybe people would have checked this out expecting something uh, and got something else and hopefully they well, would have enjoyed that because there's a lot more depth I, to it than your, your normal exploitation right absolutely uh, kind of thing or wannabe exploitation film you know but this is the problem i think anybody can take anything they want in any which way they want that's fine but last night maria and i sat down and watched this again and i just said you know based on the poster for this and the trailer i could see a lot of people today you know in this current political climate just going sure you know hell no yeah you know, yeah with, yeah without even really giving the film a once-over you know like really digging into it and saying well this is what it's all about i mean i mean you see that poster and the judgments already made absolutely but even when you sort of get to the film itself there are moments in there where i think it seems to me like craig brewer is saying I want to be deliberately provocative. It seems like there's enough stuff with the subject matter here. You know, this troubled young woman and this troubled guy, and they find themselves and this story could naturally play out. But she's wearing a Confederate T-shirt. And you almost sort of wonder, does she know what that represents? Or is that just her form of rebellion? And there's been accusations that Craig Brewer thinking, well, was there any real need to keep Christina Ricci for... 80% of the film in nothing but a pair of underpants and this little halter top. It, it's interesting you, you you say that, Morris, but and uh, absolutely, I, I totally get that. But it's it's about so much more than that. All that stuff is just kind of surface. Mm-hmm. If you're going to watch the film and that's all you get from it, then you're kind of, <laughs> you're lo- you've lost already, haven't you? Do you know what I mean? Yep. There's a lot more going on under the surface. There's a lot more depth to well, the characters, to why they're acting how they are, you know? But once again, it comes down to that poster. That poster is selling yeah. its audience saying, hey, come here and this is what you're going to see. If you've never seen a 1970s Grindhouse film, come and check this out. Yeah, sure. There's a lot of dark subject matter here. That poster needn't have been the selling point. Yeah. It is a false selling point. Yeah. It's interesting. I was just reading in the, the trivia that Christina Ricci won't actually sign any promotional stuff for this film because she was so disappointed in the way it was actually promoted. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Mm. I do got seeing in me. I ain't going to lie about that, but I got respect. It's a biblical tale in a way, right? And, you know, for example... If you're looking at, for example, like a story like Abraham was supposed to kill his son Isaac, right? 
Well, if you say, oh my God, man, this guy was going to kill his kid. Well, there's more to it than that. If you just look at the initial, whoa, wait a minute, what the hell is this? You know, then you're really missing, like Bernie saying, the underlying element of it, but it's all the biblical thing. And I mean, I think she's representing the temptation. And the thing is, is that when she's getting all revved up and she's going anything with, you know, a, a dick and a heartbeat, Samuel Jackson, he's steadfast in his belief and he just keeps trying to hold the role of trying to, you know, get her on the straight and narrow. And it's, like I said, I think that element needs to be there in a way because if initially, you know, she tries to get out of it by trying to tempt him like the serpent with the apple. But then initially, that's how she tries to, you know, I, I can kind of screw my way out of this. But then she finds out that, no, no, I can't. I've got to go through with it. You know, I've got, I've got to basically endure what this guy wants me to endure. And eventually, you know, she goes on her own and she finds herself. What this film does so well, everything you're describing now, if it was just a plain exploitation kind of film, that would be enough. But yeah. what this film does so well is that it grounds all the characters, it hints at various backstories and things that they've been through and lived through. It kind of gives explanations as to why they're acting the way they act. Like I say, you can read that biblical stuff there, it's absolutely there, but it's a story about humans and what they do to each other and how they break each other and then how they can try and get through that and perhaps maybe find some solace and some redemption in each other, you know? Just like a bird without a feather You know I'm lost without your love Just like a bird Let me ask you this. I was sort of thinking that we get Samuel L. Jackson's character Lazarus we find his motivation for everything really early on in the film. He's been... And just, can I just interject as well, Morris, where it sure. pops into my head as well? The fact that he's called Lazarus is perfect, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Well, they're hitting you over the head with that biblical allusion. For yeah, sure. yeah. Uh, but the, we find out that early on in the film what his motivation is. Uh, he finds out that his wife doesn't love him anymore and she's running off with his brother. So that's a big humiliation for him. He rides his tractor back on the farm over her bed of roses we know what is breaking him we know what's disturbing him we get this superficial look early on at the christina ricci character she's promiscuous and we don't know until a lot later on in the film why and i just sort of wonder and i personally i think the pacing for that was very well done but do you think it would have affected how we viewed the film if we would have gotten her story her motivation a lot early on like within the first I don't know 15 minutes or something like that would it have played out differently for you yeah I, I think so Brewer does a, a good job at kind of meeting out the information about her as the film progresses and so you kind of have a, a, almost a change of heart and just in the way that you know Lazarus does as well I think it makes a big difference I think it's really well paced in that respect I think it is too because you see you have to see it in a way as an awakening from Christina Ricci there's a point in the film where she goes into the store and she's given her mother shit I just think you should have kept him off me that's all what the hell are you talking about now don't do that mama I would go along with all the crap you talk about me but you can't pretend no more on that because I was just a kid I didn't know about all that shit he was doing to me. And you let him do it. Some big nobody in your life, and you let him do whatever the fuck he wanted. And her mother's trying to still deny it or hide it. And she says, no, you can't do that anymore. You know, you got to tell me the truth, right? But I don't think that Christina Ricci, as Ray, the character, she couldn't have done that in the beginning. She was still delusional herself. She was still all wrapped up in self-medicating and all of that until she gets to a point of clarity. And, you know, and she's almost like Lazarus, where she's coming back from the dead as well. I don't think they could have really laid it out in the beginning of the film. I think that it's like when she comes to the realization of accepting it and really just standing in front of it, that's when we get it. That's when we're supposed to get it. This was Christina Ricci's second film playing a character who gets kidnapped although her character in buffalo 66 is a long way from the ray character that she plays 
in this film. Very I different think, like, film as well, yeah. Yeah, very different film. In Buffalo 66, her character is someone who sort of goes along with it quite happily. And I think it's a great film, but the last time I watched it, I felt a lot more uncomfortable with it. And Vincent Gallo struck me as even a, a bigger asshole than I, <laughs> than I previously. And I've not seen The Brown Bunny and I haven't followed any of his personal life backstory. I know a lot of people say he's a prick, but yeah, that film, what's the complex? You fall in love with your captor. She sort of goes beyond that in Buffalo 66. In this one, she's basically saying, I'm going to live my life. You're not going to tell me what to do until he imposes those limits on her. I read an essay where there was a suggestion saying that the chain that he wraps around her waist is like a metaphor for imposing the limits that she doesn't otherwise have. I'm not sure whether I go along with that but I just sort of found where it interesting where this similar circumstance, two very different films, but yeah, there's not that many films where someone is kidnapped and held against their will in the way that her character is in both of these films. She was your uh, your go-to actress for Stockholm Syndrome in the uh, 90s or two, early 2000s, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Both of you were talking about the blues earlier on and how music just mainly sort of seeps its way through the culture, through the rhythm of the film rather than always being an explicit thing. It is there very much in your face in select scenes in the film and I want to get to that but I love the fact that the the opening thing that we see in the film is a bit of footage of Sunhouse, someone who I know that you as well as I do, Tim, uh, we're both huge fans of Sunhouse's music. And I, yeah. the first time I watched this before I got the R.L. Burnside connection, I sort of thought, oh, I wonder if it's going to be more of a parallel to Sunhouse. But of course, both of those musicians are as gritty and real as the blues came. So the opening scene of the film, this archival footage has... Sunhouse talking to his audience and saying, Ain't but one kind of blues, and that consists between male and female that's in love. That certainly is the case for a lot of what he wrote. A lot of our old Burnside stuff is also in that line as well. But I mean, of course, obviously, blues is party music, it's celebration, and there's a very key scene where. Samuel L. Jackson's character finds the courage to go up, to get up and play music again. And the blues becomes a big celebration. And we'll we'll come more, I guess, later on to how Christina Ricci reacts in that way, using maybe dancing as a replacement for sex. It's one big orgy. Yeah, Mm. that's one thing. The one problem I kind of had with the film was like where she just basically came through all this trial of trying not to be horned up and, you know, trying to basically get on the straight and narrow. And then he takes her off the chain and they go there and it's just like, holy cow, right back into it. It's like, how does that help her? But I I think the point of of the scene is that he's got himself under control and she's got herself under control. Both of them re-entering the world, isn't it, really? <laughs> right, right, exactly. And, you yeah. know, I was going to say, what, what you were talking about with music and Sunhouse and all of this, I don't know if this makes any sense, but I've always kind of looked at the blues like a storm. Because you, know, you get before the storm, and then you're in the storm, and then it's after the storm. Some of the blues is about before you got a problem. Some of the blues is being in the problem. And some of the blues is like the enjoyment or being alive getting through the problem and i mean that's what that whole scene is all about is the celebration of getting through the problem Mm. it's overcoming what you've been through the endurance so that's what i mean by like the storm you know it's like a lot of trouble on my path you know like before it's about to happen recognizing what's ahead of you and then a lot of like i say the blues songs have been written about being in the midst of the shit and then there's been a lot of songs that have written like glory hallelujah you know i you know a lot of more of the spiritual end of it where it's like you know i'm free or you know i've been absolved from everything my past and my wicked ways or or a woman set me straight you know i don't need any of that stuff no more like i said earlier you know it's about sex it's about god it's about retribution i mean not retribution tribulation and coming out the other side rebirth i think in a way sun house 
was perfect as an introductory figure for this film and his ghost hanging over the film so well because he started out life as someone who just thought, no, gospel music, I'm not interested in guitar, I'm not interested in the blues. And then he came to the blues and I think he realized that there was no contradiction between right. blues music and the church. I know that there are a lot of it's people who said shame. blues music was Satan's music that wasn't for the church. And he was a religious guy to start off with. And I'm also thinking of uh, the great Reverend Gary Davis. Gary Davis, yeah. yeah. Who sort of went beyond the one, four, five blues styles, but still very much for him, blues music and the great Rosetta Tharp. You know, all these yeah. people who realize that, no, the blues music is very much a catharsis. It's a celebration. It's not going against their religious beliefs. And, no. and so it's the same thing with the Lazarus character here. He was trying to be all churched up. Pious and deny that side of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. right. He had his pastor friend who was very conveniently named RL. And mm-hmm. um, <laughs> he was sort of going between, I've fallen off the wagon, but I want to be a good guy. I want to come back on the wagon. I've fallen off the wagon. And then when he has that brilliant scene, which I think is probably my favorite scene in the whole film, that celebration. As you say, Tim, they've come through the storm. They've gone into what looks like it could be temptation for anyone else. I wouldn't say they've resolved all their problems. I mean, the final scene of the film shows that Ray and yeah. her fiance have, well, her husband by the end of husband, the film. Husband, yeah. Uh, have not come through all their problems, but they now have the strength, we hope, after the credits roll to be able to deal with it. It's it's interesting, I think, is is more that she has the strength because not only has she got to look after herself, she's got to look after him. And I think she comes out, actually, as probably the strongest character in the film. Are we here, church? People say we are in this holy way. There are strange things. Every day on that last red judgment day, when they drive them all away, there are strange things happening every day. What you're talking about with Rosetta Thorpe and Reverend Gary Davis and that, what's interesting to me is that if you look back to the beginning of the Bible, Jesus didn't hang out with the diplomats. He didn't hang out with the moneylenders. He hung out with the prostitutes and the lepers and the unclean. And those were the people who recognized what he was trying to do. That aspect of the blues came through with Rosetta Thorpe, where she took it to the street, man. And this is the same thing with Sun House, is that he realized, I got to reach people in any way I can. You know, I, you know, everybody in church is already converted. I, you know, I can't sing to the choir. I've got to sing to the street. And I think that's one of the linchpins of this film is Lazarus basically seeing Bruce Fruit and it's not like you know he's a psychologist I'm sorry psychiatrist saying you know like lay down on my couch and tell me how you suffered as a child you know he's just kind of like this is something I gotta do and it's the only well, way around it's, it it's redemption for him as well as it is for yeah, her isn't absolutely, it absolutely you know? absolutely yeah. yeah so let's get into some of the music in this film I don't know if you fellas got to uh, see who's on the soundtrack to this but oh my god well Kenny Brown and Cedric Burnside are playing with Sam Jackson in that scene in the bar. Right. I've seen Kenny Brown here in his own right do a gig years ago. There was a tour in the early 90s. I'm, I'm sorry, there's a bit of a move away from your original point. We'll come back to it. Yeah. Do you remember, Tim, there was a documentary from the early 90s based on a book, I think by not the pop singer Robert Palmer, but by the blues researcher, blues musicologist Robert Palmer. Uh, the film was called Deep Blues. Do you remember that documentary? Is that the one with uh, Dave Stewart? That's the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, Dave, yeah, yeah. Dave, Dave Dave Stewart is on a tour with the Arrhythmics and you would have thought would have been the last person you'd expect to have a deep invested interest in the blues but he's a, he was a, definitely a big blues guy and he knew that Robert Palmer was making a film to follow up on his book on the research of a lot of these out of the way Mississippi fo- so this film is sort of like his Alan Lomax moment and he's going around right. and it's, I think right. this film is where we first get to see the world first gets to see R.L. Burnside and we get Mae Hemphill who yes. you see 
see her like both playing guitar but also playing drum in a fife and drum band. Like 30 years ago, this was my introduction to fife and drum music, which I always thought was militarily related, but the African-American community had adapted it after the Civil War for their own musical celebration. So this film was just absolutely amazing. I recommend anyone out there who hasn't seen that either find the soundtrack or watch a film, but that's where you see R.L. Burnside for the first time. Well, what's kind of funny, actually, is it's kind of a misnomer because, like, R.L. was playing festivals in Europe in the late 60s, and he was putting out albums in the 70s as well. But, you know, it, all of a sudden, people just suddenly, wow, who's this guy? Mm. But he was out there. I had a chance to actually see R.L. in the mid-90s in Phoenix, Arizona. And, man, that is, like, in my top three shows of all time. It was incredible. And it was like this little bar called the Rhythm Room, and there had to be about 150 people, 200 people there. Three-hour set, well, two 90-minute sets and an intermission in between. He sat on a chair in the front, Kenny to his side, and Cedric in the back. And, man, it was like going to church. It was unbelievable. And in between, I bought him a shot. I took it over to him, and I got him to sign my Fat Possum disc. And I just said, R.L., I said, you're goddamn amazing. And without a split second, he looked up at me and said, I know, boy, I know. <laughs> Love it. But holy shit, man, like that night when I saw R.L., it was pretty much a lot like that scene in The Juke. Because, man, if you weren't shaking your ass... You weren't there. It was unbelievable. Off the chain. But to roll back into what we were talking about, the people involved in this soundtrack, you know who was playing harmonica through this whole thing? Who was that? Charlie Musselwhite. I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was Char- Charlie Musselwhite was playing through this. Luther Dickinson... Yeah, he was involved with this. I've seen Luther Dickinson. I saw the uh, North Mississippi All-Stars. Yeah, North Mississippi All-Stars were involved in this. And then John Doe's on the soundtrack, too. Wow. Mm-hmm. And Cooter was loosely involved in this as well. Wow, I didn't know. There was a whole... And uh, Alvin Youngblood on this. I've seen Alvin Youngblood. He's amazing. Great musician. Yeah, because he's the one who's playing This Little Light of Mine oh. with Christina Ricci. What's really amazing about this as well is that Sam Jackson didn't know how to play these songs. And so what they actually had to do was take him and sit him down with some of these old blues guys. And they taught him how to play. And he got so good at it because they just first initially, they just wanted to do detailed shots in his fingering to make it look like, you know, he was really playing the songs. But he said, no, hell, that ain't good enough. He said, I want shots of me playing the song. So he actually sat down for hours and hours and hours and hours and learned how to play those songs where he could play the majority of those songs that were played in the film. Like, for example, the Bird Without a Wing, Catfish, like all those songs that Sam Jackson is playing in the film. He's really playing them. It kind of teases you a little bit because the first time you see him pull out his guitar and play, you see his fingers on the fretboard. Right. And then right. it cuts to his face and it keeps doing that. And I was thinking, right. oh, they've got some other dude playing the guitar. Right. But then, as, as you say, as you progress through, you actually see him playing those songs. So it kind of right. wrong foots you a little bit. And then you think, oh, yeah. shit, yeah, he is doing it. That's just it. Initially, they just wanted to do shots of his fingers. But then, like yeah. Sam said, no, I ain't half assing it, man. I mean, they're going to do it or I'm not. So he really did it. This here song from back in the day, 1962. My woman put my black ass out in the cold. I said, baby, why you leaving? She said, I love Dungeon Cold. Well, I waited through water and I waited through mud till I come to this place they call the Bucket of Blood. There's so many points in this film where they even use a large part of R.L.'s catalog, too. I mean, Alice May, the song he plays in The Juke, that's R.L.'s song that Kenny co-wrote with him. Don't they play him doing Stagger Lee? Stagger Lee, that's another one. Well, his variation of an old 
you know, mm. standard. Well, that's that's got hundreds of variations. That song. Oh yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. But there's a, a ton of different things. Here's another thing that is surprising, right? Is Black Snake Moan was written by Blind Lemon Jefferson. first time I saw the film, I thought this was a song written for the film, like years ago, and then I realized that I'm doing research, I was like, damn, man, I didn't even know. But it's just amazing how they incorporate a lot of, again, like, like I don't know how to put it in the words, initially, like I said, I was really kind of skeptical at first, because at first I thought, they're just going to get the Black Keys to do everything. And yeah, the Black Keys are involved in this. But, but they, gotta, they didn't do everything yet. Right, right. <laughs> but I got to hand it to the Black Keys guys, so like Dan Auerbach and those guys, because they were part of the reason that Fat Possum is still standing and that a yeah. lot of this whole music is still out there. Like, I mean, these guys were champions of guys like, you know, T-Model Ford, Junior Kimbrough, mm. RL, all these guys. All these guys came to Australia on the package tour. So, like, after Deep Blues was released, and I think they showed it on SBS TV over here, they brought them out, like, on this big package tour. The film, I'm not saying it made them big international stars or anything, but these people, like who you mentioned, that ended up on the Fat Possum label, like Junior Kimbrough, became a little bit... The film, obviously, sort of got played on the uh, film festival festival circuit and they made this big package and people like these got their due which was great to see so i mean not quite i guess in the same way like the english blues festival circuit made heroes of uh, people like uh, mrs yippie john hurt or any of the other people who were discussing in two trains running but it's still for the next generation it did bring some people back to light i, I love the title of the one of these fat possum anthology cds called not the same old blues shit and they certainly did have a, a different approach. That's actually the one I got our elder sign. Right. Lovely. Lovely. I guess I don't know what else to say about this, man. I got another couple of points I wanted to bring up, see where you thought about this. So the song itself, Black Snake Moan, which he sings in the film, and originally from Blind Lemon Jefferson, I read an interesting article and there was like a forum afterwards where people were going back and forth as to what they thought it was about. There were some people who were saying, oh, the black snake represents fear and uh, there's some people saying no it's purely about sex it's not about fear some people say no because Blind Lemon Jefferson he couldn't see anything so this was him talking about the black snake in the room and he doesn't know if he's going to be hurt or he doesn't know where his life is going and some people say no sometimes a metaphor for sex is really about sex who'd have thought people arguing on the internet Um, (laughs) right I was going to say what do you guys think of the performances I was really taken I don't think I've ever seen a Samuel L. Jackson performance that I didn't like. Uh, I'm, yeah. not, I'm not saying I didn't see a film of his that I didn't care for, <laughs> but that's not the same thing. He always put in a great performance, and I, I believed in him. I'm going to put this by, and I'll come to Christina Ricci in a moment, but I sort of saw his character, and I know neither of you are Tarantino fans, but if you remember at the end of Pulp Fiction where his character Jules Winifield says, well, basically... I've found religion. I'm just going to walk the earth from now on. I've given up the gangster life. And I sort of saw that his character Lazarus was like a an extension of Jules Winterfield. He never quite got round to walking the earth. He only ever made it as far as Mississippi. Life didn't treat him well. He'd learnt the guitar and then and he got married and things turned to shit for him. Uh, and then when he goes and does that gig in the Duke joint, and every, every other word when he's singing about Stackley is, you know, that motherfucking Billy Lyons. That's Jules Winfield yeah. coming yeah, out. Yeah, it's yeah. the old gangster character. So, I mean, I'm sure it's not what they intended, but I just saw that yeah. nice little thing. Yeah, it's two sides of the coin. I was going to say about performances, you know. I was actually really impressed with Justin Timberlake. I was going to mention Justin Timberlake as well. Bernie, have you seen Southland Tales? Uh, I saw it when it came out, and I haven't seen okay. it since, so I don't remember a huge amount about it. Well, Justin Timberlake's in it playing like a Gulf War vet or whatever, and the Killers did a video, but it's actually part of the film, where he's singing, I got soul, but I'm not a soldier. 
and right. it's all like in a bowling alley and it's amazing uh, okay. it's really good i i never really thought much about the guy before and then i seen him in this and i was just like yeah 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 and then i saw him in southland tales and as, as much as that film is a train wreck he's he's really good in that the only other film i think i've seen him in is inside lewin davis and i don't think he had enough of a role in that for me to really judge him as a good actor or whatnot either way but yeah he does deliver really well in this have you guys uh, seen the social network he's excellent in oh, that oh right he's yeah yeah that's that. right yeah. too I forgot about yeah. that yeah no I've, I've got a lot, a lot of time for uh, Justin Timberlake I think he's great in this he's not given much but I think what he does with it he's got quite a uh he doesn't overdo it, considering he's somebody who's sort of dealing with anxiety and maybe some sort of PTSD type situation. He kind of keeps it all in and it only comes out in certain spots. And I think that was a really good way to play it. It's, he could have just right. played it as a crazy, wobbly train wreck type guy, but well, it doesn't yeah. at all. It's, it's quite a measured performance and I think it's all the right. better for it. If you really look at it through all three of the characters, right? To me, the, the South has always been about a patchwork. Nobody is definitively this or definitively that in the South. The South is made up of kind of fragments of people. And I mean, when you see his character, he's supposed to be like the tough Southern guy, but he's Mm. broken. He's fragmented. And then Ray, she's supposed to be wearing the sundresses and being all the dainty Southern belle and that, and she's fragmented. And then you see like even Lazarus, where he's supposed to shut his mouth and play the role as, you know, the African-American, not stirring up any shit or anything. And he's fragmented. So, I mean, nobody plays definitive like this role or that role. They're all broken people. The film's about broken people. Right, they all do a really good job of portraying that in in different ways without overdoing it, which you know right. you can assume would be a, quite an easy route to take you know but i'm so. saying that that's a definitive part of the south though i'm not saying everybody from the south is broken but the south itself when you look at the history of the civil war you look at all the mixing of race in the south all the conflict all of it it's all fragmented and it's like people you know picking the pieces up together picking the pieces back up from the culture from all of it trying to make their way through with what they've got what they've been given and where they are yeah Christina Ricci had the most difficult arc, both in a superficial sense, because she's wearing what she's wearing the whole film through, and that certainly couldn't have been comfortable for her. But just in terms of where she ends up at the end of the film, I I hate to sort of use the expression typical Hollywood film, but in a typical Hollywood film, you want a clear-cut definition of where the character ends up either improved or a better version of themselves or a lot more confident by the last five minutes as opposed to where they are in the first ten minutes of the film. And she's still... I don't know. Yeah, I guess she's still maybe broken in a way at the end of the film, but she has a lot more belief in herself. She's been given strength and belief by the Samuel L. Jackson character. So she says, look, I've still got problems, but I'm going to give this a try. The beginning of the film, she didn't want to give anything a try. And I like the film that for, for this big budget Hollywood film, they haven't sort of gone and tried to tie everything neatly with into a little nice neat package with a bow right well it's, it's, it's not a happy ending is it it's no. a hopeful ending but not happy and it, it well, kind of goes out of its way to intimate that things aren't necessarily going to be easy or happy for the people involved you know right well the one thing is is that sam jackson he says to her at the end he says get out there live your life and get your shit together and that sums it up but I was going to say, when you were talking about where she was winding up, one place she definitely didn't wind up was the craft service table because, man, she was just skin and ribs. I was reading oh, in the uh, IMDb trivia, she apparently throughout the whole shoot, she just ate trashy junk food with no nutritional value, just in a, a character way. And apparently she wouldn't put clothes on between takes. She was like that all the time. She was really wow. going the method route, it seems. The antithesis of how her character looked in Buffalo 66. Yes. Well, I think there might have been uh, <laughs> possibly some surgery involved there as well. But well, there you go. Who knows? Yes. Yeah. You saying that gun is for me if I don't? I ain't letting you talk me out of shit no more, RL. Now I've made up my mind on this. I ain't gonna be moved. Ain't gonna be moved. Ain't no room for preaching around here no more. Now I'd have told you to get on. Or what? Go on now. I think everybody I'm- needs to see this film. 
And I really think that, you know, don't judge a book by its cover. Yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, the funny thing is, it's like even through the film, no spoilers. But when certain individuals wind up on Lazarus's farm and they see, you know, they see the scenario. How do you explain that? How do you explain your way out of that? I mean, just walking into his house and seeing a chained white woman in your house. I mean, there's only so many ways you can put a spin on that. And and some people might see or, or hear things about the premise of this and go, man, they, that ain't for me. But I'm telling you, if you can look beyond and give it a chance, this film is, is an amazing film. It's so funny because it's like, how many songs have you ever heard? Break these chains. This is literally the literal chains that you know we've metaphorically been hearing people sing about over and over and over. Craig Brewer did a great job with this film, and I love it. Uh, yeah, I, I got to agree with Tim. Don't be put off by uh, what you may think from seeing the the poster or any of the promotional stuff or any idea you might have. It's a hopeful, wonderful film, like I say, about broken people, about redemption, about love, just about sort of being human, really. It's it's interesting. I'll bring this up now. It's probably the wrong time to bring it up now. We've we've talked about it, but... (laughs) (laughs) Until I say farewell, folks, it's never too late. Yeah. It's interesting that, you know, obviously a film set in the South dealing with African-American characters and white characters, race is obviously a big issue in any film set in that kind of environment. But it, it almost seems secondary here. I mean, you're, you're never not aware of it, but it's, it's not really a huge part of what occurs throughout the film. Right. As I say, it's, right. about, it's about humans, it's about people connecting. Sure. And whilst the idea of race is always present, it's not really sort of foregrounded and an important so not not an, an important but um, uh, you know a big a main part of what the film is doing for better or for worse I, I, I don't know but whatever but the film still works fantastically well for me as far as I'm concerned sure so. you know not that my friends in the south speak for everyone but people that I know that have that still live in the south will tell you that in, in most circumstances that race isn't an issue until it becomes an issue Sure. Yeah. Until yeah. until somebody somebody does something or somebody says something, it's just it is what it is. You know, and, and this is what I was saying about earlier about the patchwork of the South. There's those that are still trying to adhere to these definitive rules. You have to definitively be this. You have to definitively be that. And then there's others that see it more as you know a mosaic of everyone all coming together for the greater good. Instead of, you know, this constant struggle about, you know, separating and and yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. forcing these you know, characterizations on people. Well, I, I guess it's, it's the eternal uh, Hollywood thing, isn't it? In the, what we're being presented with as, you know, me and Morris as people on the other side of the world. And uh, this kind of picture of the South that we've been presented through the years, through movies and books and so on. Sure. I mean, we're not there. We don't live there. We don't experience it firsthand. So how accurate is it and how accurate is our interpretation of it, you know? Sure. But we've also got things that we've seen, like, over the last few years under the previous American administration. Oh, of course. Um, Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that's that's absolutely horrifying. And, you know, we we spoke, uh, you know, a couple of years ago about two trains running. I mean, that's... 50 sure. years ago, but really, I mean, who knows how much has changed. But yes, I guess as from a superficial perspective, as someone who lives on the other side of the world, yeah. I, I was happy to see a film where it was an issue, but it wasn't an issue. Yeah, and yeah. If there's anyone who listens to this program that lives in the South of America, please send us an email, seeherepodcast at gmail.com or click on the Facebook page where I post this show and right. let us know. Were the circumstances in the film if not necessarily accurate we're not talking about one character tying up another character until she's redeemed her so we're just talking about the circumstances of the town that they lived in semi-accurate the only moment that it really is an issue so to speak is when rl says to lazarus you call the sheriff on this rl I put yourself in my place. You're out here by yourself with a, as you said, half-naked white woman. Love the fuck. Now, I have been toe-to-toe with the law in this town a heap of times just for being black and nearby. That says an awful lot right there, doesn't it? That encapsulates it. Wind blowing way up top of the hill. I hear the wind blowing way up top of the hill. Down in the valley. 
I think that's pretty much a thumbs up from all three of us. We recommend that you go check out the film on whatever streaming service or if you've got the DVD, dig it out and give it a watch. So we'll talk now about episode 84 coming out in April of 2021. And I'm very excited about this one, as I always am. We have an interview with two gentlemen who've gone and released a new documentary about the band Madness. We have an interview with Bill Jones and Ben Timblett, who uh, also actually recently, I believe, they did a documentary on uh, the history of handmade films, the company that George Harrison had started to get Life of Brian made and made a whole bunch of great films through the 80s. So we might have to uh, discuss with them a little bit about that as well. But yeah, they've gone and made a three-hour documentary that's going to be shown on May on, um, I think, the AMC network in the States and hopefully everywhere else at some stage called Madness When We Was We. I believe it's sort of like a follow-up from a book that basically covered everything about the band before they became a band. But I think that this documentary is supposed to cover their time as a band um, rather than the beforehand or maybe as well as the beforehand. So whatever it is, we're really, really looking forward to speaking to those two gentlemen and we'll be going one step beyond to uh, talk with those two fine gentlemen. That'll be a lovely thing. Ah, nice. See what what I did there? (laughs) I do, yeah. Um, Basically, if you want to get in contact with us, as I said, see here podcast at gmail.com. You can join the Facebook group at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash see here podcast. Instagram is um, at see here podcast. Look us up, follow us for the exciting posts you uh, occasionally get. I just have to finish this off with saying, Tim, I'm so happy to have you back. Uh, not pissing in your pocket, but five months yeah. without you. I mean, come on. We, people are saying, where's that Tim? Where's that intro to the show? Where's his insight? Because they just had to deal with the two of us schmucks. Just the power trio is perfect. You don't, you know, the duo with us piddling along on our acoustic guitars. We want you there, Tim. <laughs> Finally, uh, thanks, guys. Plug I it appreciate back it. In and we can crank it up. So yeah, welcome back, man. Cutting onions over here, loafing up. <laughs> <laughs> oh. All right, so on that note, we bid you a fond farewell. Please spread the word. We're proudly members of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Please check out all the other podcasts that are out there. When last I heard, there were 69 podcasts on the uh, network and uh, a lot of other fine shows there. I'm sure you'll find something else that will uh, twiddle your dials and uh, make you want to listen to people talk about music in all its many facets. So until uh, next month, look after yourself. Be nice to each other. All the best. Cheers. Cheers. Bye.